Welcome to Word Journeys, a podcast about etymology and the surprising stories behind the origins of English words. This is Dallas, coming to you from Philadelphia. Today's episode is about nothing. Well, nothing as in zero. It took humans a long time to come up with the concept of zero, and even longer to figure out how to use it to our advantage and to incorporate it into our mathematical systems. Today, we'll talk about the history and evolution of the word zero, as well as other terms for zero in English. And in the process, we'll touch on the shifty letter N, and even a word that Game of Thrones has brought back from the dead. So stay with us. Before we get into the etymologies, I want to provide some background about the history of zero in mathematics. So it'll be a little mathy for a minute or two. Our modern system of arithmetic relies on two different things. One is the idea of having place values, and the other is the zero digit. As an example, think about the number 123. It only contains three digits, the one, the two, and the three, but the order matters. The position of the one indicates that there is one group of 100. The position of the two indicates there are two groups of 10, and the position of the three means there are three ones. This is a place value system, which allows one to simply and concisely represent 123 of something. Place value systems were used in Babylonian mathematics by the middle of the second millennium BCE, and it was organized by groups of 60. Mesoamerican mathematics also had a place value system based on groups of 20. The Greeks and the Romans did not have place value systems, and even though their symbols represented groups of numbers, like the Roman numerals X for 10 and C for 100, the order didn't necessarily matter, and it wasn't as concise. The Greeks managed to make significant mathematical advances even without the place value system, and they almost got there. The mathematician Archimedes did create a type of place value system in trying to solve a particular problem about calculating the number of sand grains in the universe, but his system was based on groups of 100 million and he never scaled it down or applied it to everyday use. Even though place value systems were common, the zero digit hadn't been invented yet, which was a critical flaw. To see why, think about the number 210. In positional systems without the zero digit, 210 would have been written 21. The position still conveys important information, but 210 becomes indistinguishable from 21 or even 21,000 or 21 million. Over time, cultures began to develop symbols for zero, or the idea of nothing, but they weren't integrated into mathematical convention. For instance, as early as 130 CE, Ptolemy was using a symbol of a circle with a line over it to represent zero, and in Roman numerals by the early 8th century, the letter N could be used to represent zero. It was short for the Latin word nulla, which meant nothing and from which we get the English words null and nullify. In fact, the words for zero in many languages today are derivatives of the Latin nulla. But the earliest example of our modern mathematical convention, a system which used a place value system based on 10 and that used a zero digit, was developed in India around 500 CE and was used in an astronomical treatise by Indian mathematician Aryabhata. The symbol for zero which was just a dot, was called shunya, the Sanskrit word for emptiness or void. 
The symbols we still use today for 1 through 9 also came from India, and were attested by the 3rd century BCE. This was a critical advancement, because with a proper zero digit in a positional system, numbers can be added and multiplied with efficiency impossible to achieve before. By the 7th century, the system was worked out and knowledge of it had begun to spread west. Eventually, in 813 CE, the Arabic mathematician Al-Khwarizmi, whose name is the source of the word algorithm, created astronomical tables which used the Hindu numerals. Al-Khwarizmi also used a small circle for the zero digit, and translated the Sanskrit shunya, meaning void, into the Arabic word for void, which was sifr. The Hindu-Arabic numeral system, which is what we use today, passed into Europe primarily through one mathematician, Leonardo of Pisa, better known as Fibonacci. The name Fibonacci is actually an abbreviation of the Latin Filius Bonacci, which means the son of Bonaccio, and was coined by a historian only in 1838. Fibonacci was the son of a merchant, and he spent his early years with his father in North Africa, where he encountered the Hindu-Arabic system. He also spent time around lots of merchants, and he began to recognize the inferiority of their accounting system, which was based on Roman numerals. Fibonacci published his magnum opus, the Liber Abaci, the Book of Calculation, in 1202, in which he introduced the Hindu-Arabic numerals to a European audience. Writing in Latin, he rendered the Arabic word for zero, sifr, as zephyrum. Over time, Zephyrum became Zephyro in Italian, which was contracted to Zephro and then Zero. But this word, and for that matter, the entire Hindu-Arabic numeral system, took a while to catch on. The word Zero first appeared in French in 1515, and it didn't appear in English until 1604. The abstract use of Zero, not just the mathematical symbol, isn't attested in English until 1823. Even though mathematicians quickly adopted the Hindu-Arabic system, it wasn't picked up by merchants or accountants, who continued to use Roman numerals and the abacus well into the 16th century. The Arabic word sifr actually gave us another English derivative. From when Fibonacci rendered the Arabic sifr as zephyrum, it took around 400 years for zephyrum to evolve into zero and then enter English. And during that time, the Latin Zephyrum entered English directly. By 1400, English contained the word cipher or cipher to denote the symbol for zero, but specifically its placeholding aspect, and by 1530, it could refer to any of the Hindu-Arabic numerals. Around the same time, cipher also came to refer to a secret type of writing, which specifically denoted a message in which the characters were all stand-ins for other characters. This might come from the meaning of cipher as a placeholder, since messages could be encoded by letters being switched according to some shared scheme, or maybe from the meaning of cipher as digit, because numbers were often used instead of letters in early secret codes. By 1600, a cipher could also refer to a worthless person, someone who is just a space filler. But this meaning became obsolete and its original meaning of nothing was replaced by zero, its etymological sibling. The words cipher and decipher live on in English and are more relevant than ever. Coming up, 
What did English speakers call zero before the 17th century? Stay with us. So before the word zero made it into English as a mathematical term, or even as a metaphorical term, what was the word for zero? Well, it was the word not. N-A-U-G-H-T. It's a bit archaic, but still found in phrases such as all for naught. Like zero today, naught referred to both the number and the concept of zero, and also figuratively meant nothing. The very formation of the word naught is interesting, and it has a few etymological relatives in English worth exploring. The word was formed from the phrase na-wit, with na meaning no, and wit being an old English word generally meaning a thing or a being, so not just meant no thing. The Old English root wit still survives in English in the phrase not a wit, literally not anything at all. In another etymological path, the word wit also existed in Old High German, and in German the equivalent for not anything was ne wit. Ne wit became nit, which eventually became the common German word nicht, meaning not. From the German nichts, meaning nothing, we get the English word nix, n-i-x, which originally meant nothing, and now means to cancel or reject. Also from not, meaning nothing, or zero, we get the English adjective naughty. This originally meant of nothing, and then metaphorically, worthless. Then the meaning of worthless was further shifted to mean bad, and then mischievous. And finally, the common English word not, N-O-T, is also from this source. It is also from not, meaning zero, that we get the phrase the aughts, which is a term that has been applied to the decade of the 2000s, taken from the zero zero at the end of 2000. But how did we get from not, meaning zero, to ought, meaning zero? It was formed by a linguistic process called rebracketing, and here's a bit of background info on it. The indefinite article in English can either be a or an, depending on whether the next word begins with a vowel or not. For what it's worth, an is older than a, with an emerging in the mid-12th century, and a being a contraction of it, which took hold by the mid-14th century. Rebracketing occurs when the n shifts between the article and the word. Here's an example. There was a term in English for an arbiter or judge, which was numper, from the Latin non par, meaning not equal. When referring to one of these figures, one might have said a numper. Over time, the n became attached to the article and not the noun, so a numper became an umper, and eventually an umpire. So the word umpire was formed from this process and lost its initial n. And it can work the other way too. There was a word eek name, which meant an older or other name, from an archaic English word eek. An eek name eventually became a nickname, from eek name gaining an n. So by this process, the phrase a not became an ought. And that's why ought can also mean zero, and is today somewhat interchangeable with not. So a quick recap. There's an old word, wit, meaning thing, and it gave us many English derivatives, such as the phrase not a wit, the word nix, and the word not. 
not further gives us naughty, as well as the decade of the aughts. Now, there's one more derivative of wit that I'll mention. Wit meant anything that existed and could originally be translated as being. It came to refer both to inanimate and abstract matters, like the word thing today, but also to living creatures or beings that existed in the world. Wit, meaning a living creature, can be found in Beowulf, and it is attested elsewhere by the year 888 in Old English. But concurrently, it also came to be applied to supernatural or unearthly beings, and could have either a good or a bad sense. This is first attested around 950, in a manuscript comment in the Lindisfarne Gospels. It has remained an archaic word for a long time, but was used occasionally, especially in the 17th century to apply to the beasts of the apocalypse, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. And over time, it came to be pronounced white. W-I-G-H-T. In 1869, translator and early fantasy writer William Morris translated the Icelandic Grettis saga into English. The saga featured a kind of undead creature or revenant called Draugr in Old Norse, which comes from a Proto-Indo-European root meaning to deceive, and is actually cognate with the word dream. When William Morris translated the Gretis saga, he rendered the Norse Draugr as white. Either independently or perhaps influenced by William Morris's translation, fantasy author J.R.R. Tolkien used the word white to apply to undead creatures. He wrote of Barrow Whites, creatures created from reanimated bones, the Whites, which were in burial mounds, called Barrows. In The Lord of the Rings, Frodo and company encounter the Barrow Whites. These creatures were adopted by many later fantasy authors. Undead Whites appear in the Dungeons and Dragons games beginning in 1974, and they appear in other role-playing games and fantasy fiction. George R. R. Martin included whites as undead, reanimated creatures in his Song of Ice and Fire series. Any Game of Thrones fan can recall several haunting appearances of whites on the TV show. Although they are formidable as a collective group, individually they are only shells of former humans, and not anything, as their ultimate etymology would suggest. And much like the beings themselves, fantasy authors resurrected this word which is still enjoying a nice afterlife in the 21st century. There are two final related words I want to discuss. First, for the record, the word nothing itself was formed in the exact same way that not was. It came from na-thing, with thing meaning a being or a matter. But originally, a thing was a meeting, an assembly, or a council. This meaning didn't pass out of Old English, but it still lives on in some areas. The oldest parliament in the world is the Parliament of Iceland, founded in the year 930. It was, and still is, known as the All-Thing, All Councils or All Matters. Second, going back to the zero etymology. Zero came into English from Arabic through Italian by 1604, and was transferred in an environment populated by traders and merchants. There's another word that entered English under very similar circumstances, which is worth mentioning and is relevant today. That's the word tariff. Tariff originally referred to an arithmetical table or a list of accounts. It was used in the context of international trade and customs, and often referred to an official list of customs duties on imports and exports. 
The English word was first attested in 1591, and it came from the Italian tarifa, which ultimately came from the Arabic word tarif, meaning a notification, from the verb form arafa, meaning to make known. I want to follow up on last week's cognate corner with some additional information about the root of the word kermes. Recall that kermes can trace its origin to the Proto-Indo-European root wormy, which means worm. Also descended from the root wormy is the Proto-Slavic root cherv, meaning worm, as well as the root cherven, which means red, from the red dye produced from the insect and which is the source of words for red in many Slavic languages. This root also gives us the name for some months in Slavic languages. For instance, the month of June in Polish, Czerwiec, and the month July in Czech, Czerwinets. These summer months take their names from the dye-producing insects that begin to appear around that time of the year. Thanks to listener Skuzimir in Szczecin, Poland, for sending us that information. Last week I left you with the following word puzzle. There's another English color word which is derived from the name of an insect in a different language, and like vermilion or crimson, this color represents the color produced when this insect was crushed. The answer to the question is puce, which is from the French word for flea, and is a shade of dark reddish brown. Congrats to Curtis in Philadelphia, who wrote in with the correct answer. Here's a question for next time. In this week's episode, we talked about mathematical terms. There was a Greek word, peripheria, the source of the English word periphery, which indirectly gave us another important mathematical term. If you can think of what it is, write into us through the contact page of our website, and you'll get a shout out in next week's episode. That's it for this week. If you would like more information or if you want to access some online sources, just visit our website at www.wordjourneyspodcast.com. As always, feel free to write in with questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics. If you've been enjoying the podcast, tell your friends about it, and please consider leaving a good rating and review for the podcast on iTunes. Musical selections in this episode come from the Advent Chamber Orchestra, Kevin McLeod, and Aitua. This is Dallas Simons. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.